face it, if you're not training your mind, then, then the world's training it for you and the results will speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so in order to train the mind, you've got to train the body because the body is the seed of the mind. The body is uh, like the, the mind is like a river um, flowing in the bed of the body. It can't exist without the body. Mm-hmm. Consciousness needs the body, right? So from a duality sense, the, the medical profession that says the, that consciousness is a result of complexity and experiences in the brain, that's accurate, but it's not the whole story. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective, Collective Insights Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Dan Stickler. And today we'd like to welcome back Mark Devine to the show. Mark recorded an episode with uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger back in 2017, where Daniel described Mark as being in a category by himself and having a degree of actual military elite forces training combined with embodied philosophic work. But for those of you who may not be familiar with Mark, he's a retired Navy SEAL commander, and he has developed two powerful integrative training systems that have served thousands of warriors, athletes, and professionals from different walks of life. Those would be SEAL Fit and Unbeatable Mind. Mark, welcome back. Dan, it's great to see you again. Hoo-yah. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, you as well. I mean, you know, uh, we've become friends in the the last year and spent uh, some some really expansive time together. Um, and it was, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. And really for me, I, I had an idea of who you were based on, you know, all the readings, all the podcasts I've listened to. Um, and, and you were so much deeper than that. And I should have seen that in the, in the readings, even, um, you know, most people have this idea of, you know, Mark divine, this com- seal commander and, it's just like, you know, he's this intense, um, just push everybody to the limits uh, type of guy, take no prisoners. Or I can and do that, that, believe me. <laughs> you are a, a very deep thinker and, um, and your explorations in, in the human mind and the consciousness uh, have been quite impressive um, for me to learn from you. Um, so to give us some background for people, can you, I mean, we did this before in the previous podcast, but I'd love to have you give us a bit of a backstory of what you did to create Seal Fit and Unbeatable Mind. Sure. Gosh, it's been like five years. So, I mean, I, I doubt anyone listening has heard that initial podcast. <laughs> Neurohackers come a long way since then. And so has Mark Devine. Um, yeah. So, Gosh, I was just talking to Tina about this, but I'm from a small town in upstate New York, which is really interesting because I was pretty average. Um, and I came from a family that was probably typically effed up, right? So my, a lot of alcoholism, multi-generational. My father was pretty abusive. At the same time, I loved the shit out of him. You know what I mean? And he did, he did some really good things for me. He got me out in the wilderness. Um, we were fortunate to have kind of two homes. One was this small town outside a, a, a industrial city called Utica, New York. And then in the summer, we would summer on Lake Placid, New York, 
And most people would recognize that as the home of the Winter Olympics twice over. And this place was really formative in retrospective when I can look back then and say, okay, what were some of the major formative experiences of my childhood? It was like Placid because we didn't have any road access to our house. We took boats to get there. And our backyard was a mountain range and our front yard was a lake. And so I, and, and because being under the roof of my house was a little bit unsavory, I would spend all, as much time as I could outdoors, often alone, right? And so I got very comfortable in the stillness of nature, which then led to finding stillness in my mind and being comfortable with it. And so you could say, Dan, that my first mental training laboratory was nature and not just sitting under a tree. I mean, I'm like long endurance runs um, alone, you know, where I would just go and run up a mountain and then run down and, you know, just getting into these intense flow states before flow state was even a term that we knew about. This is back in the seventies and early eighties. And, um, and also sitting for long periods of time, I had my first um, disembodiment experience sitting on top of Whiteface Mountain after one of these intense run hikes up there, you know, where I literally would try to run up the mountain and I'd go flying past all these hikers and they just thought, I think I was this crazy guy. I guess I was um, impervious to pain even then, right? which made me a pretty good candidate for the SEAL teams later on. And I remember getting to the top of Whiteface Mountain and plopping down, pulling out my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, and before I even took a bite, I just had this experience of me kind of like suddenly kind of shifting my perspective to where I was looking at myself sitting there holding onto my sandwich. And I had this complete sense of awe and peace and quietude, right? And that lasted, it felt like it lasted for hours, but it was probably only a few minutes. And then it kind of like snapped back into reality and ate my sandwich, went down the hill, you know, and, and didn't think much of it except for, wow, that's cool. I kind of like this. You know what I mean? So anyways, fast forward, I, that led me uh, also to competitive sports. So my, my second um, mental training laboratory was the pool. And what's, what's cool about competitive um, endurance sports, in particular swimming, is you're doing a combination of breath control and mental control. And I um, happened to have a swim coach at Colgate University who was a pioneer in sports psychology and had me visualize, right? And so in the um, mid early eighties, actually, I was doing performance visualization again, pretty much before this was a thing. Let me stop you for one second there. I, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but no, no, please do. You know, because I can go down a rabbit hole real deep. And, <laughs> no, take I mean, what what I've um, what I'm hearing from you is that you really didn't have any any training in mindfulness and and this flow states. So you know, you didn't have any pre framing of what it was supposed to be like, right? Not not in the formative years until. I was 21, which I still consider pretty damn young to come to meditation mm -hmm. with a qualified instructor. So all this, so I learned, I learned breath control without knowing it was breath control. I learned imagery, performance in imagery, and uh, you know what I would call future state imagery, which I used when I decided to become a Navy SEAL. And that's a little bit, you know, it's a longer story, but I, I applied performance um, 
imagery, which is like practicing a skill to becoming worthy of being a Navy SEAL in a future time period. And it had the same incredible and profound impact on me where I, I incrementally gained more and more self-confidence and self-awareness that, and, and while this was happening, the idea of being a Navy SEAL went from uh, interest and, and strong desire to absolute certainty. And I remember an actual shift in my consciousness that happened over about a, a three to five day period after nine months of me mentally practicing becoming a Navy SEAL before I had even been selected, right? Before the recruiters even said, yay, thumbs up, where I suddenly had this overwhelmingly sense of knowingness that I was going to be a Navy SEAL and I just needed to kind of mark the time and go through the motions. And that was all because uh, what I now call I won in I won in my mind before I stepped foot in the battlefield. So that imagery work came from the swim coach who taught me to swim my 200 meter breaststroke in my mind. And the cool experience there that that taught me that something was valuable there was because by the time I was able to swim my entire race in my mind, which as you can imagine, it's not easy to do. There's a fair amount of concentration power you have to develop to do that to swim eight lengths in your mind without losing focus and to be able to track your time with the stopwatch. And I was able to do that after a few months of training. And I would get roughly the same exact time every time I, tra- I swam my event in my mind. And it was three seconds faster than I ever had ever swum in the pool, which is a long freaking time. You know, that's like a, you know, that's like a lifetime for swimmers. Um, anyways, to make a long story short, that all happened my sophomore year. And then I, wrangled my way into an overseas study program in Colgate uh, my junior year. So I didn't swim because swimming, you know, was kind of a winter into spring. And this, the study program was going to go fall into winter. And then I was going to only be able to catch the very latter half, not even the latter, like the very final two races of the swim season. So I, I figured I was kind of done with swimming and I came back from that. So I, I did all this mental training. Then I didn't swim for about, almost a year. And I came back in the spring of my junior year. I ran into the swim coach and we had our pleasantries and he said, Oh, by the way, Mark, you know, we've got our final big championship race next week. Would, you know, weekend, would you like to jump in? I still consider you part of the team. Of course, and not a fiber in my body wanted to go do this because I hadn't swum in over a year, but you know, I was being polite to him. So I shook my head. Yes, Mr. Codependent Mark. And there I was standing on the block and I jumped in, you know, the gun went off and I jumped in the water and I started my 200 meter breaststroke. And I had this sensation that I had been here before and I swam the best race of my life. And guess what? I got the time that I had visualized. It was my fast. My last race was my fastest time ever by three seconds. It blew me away. And I'm like, geez. And so anyways, fast forward, I went down to New York city after I graduated from Colgate university and I took a job at um, Cooper's and library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. And they sent me to NYU Stern School of Business to get my MBA. And this is kind of the way I think. I didn't want to see my body, mind go into decline like I saw everyone else on Wall Street. You know, I was like, this is, I do not like the way these people look. I don't, not, I don't like their habits. I don't like their paunch and their gray fatty faces. So that's not going to be me. I'm going to keep training because I think that's part, that's just part and parcel of who I am. And I was only 20 at the time. So I, my routine would be, I would get up every morning and, and run five to six miles. 
And then I would, um, I would just sit and, you know, do what my, my little bit of meditation that I thought I knew how to do, which just came from me and my experiences, no training at that point and no books. And, um, because this is all pre-internet and nobody was meditating at the time or so I thought. And then in, at lunchtime, when everyone went out for their high carb lunch with a beer or two, I would go to the gym and bang out, you know, what I now know is a high intensity workout. You know, I would just find whatever machines were open and I just crank out the fastest workout I could, break the biggest sweat I could and get back in time, you know, to shower up and uh, get back to work. But anyways, Dan, I had about two hours between um, when they let me off at 5 p.m. to go to school and when school started at 7 p.m. down at the World Trade Center. And so most people, you know, would go home, change, have dinner. And I just looked at that and said, hey, there's another training window here. What can I do? And this is where my life changed. So I was walking home one day to, to, um, to where I lived on 22nd Street and on 23rd Street and Broadway. I walked underneath this building and I heard all these screams and shouts coming from the second floor. And I, I had no idea what it was. I thought maybe something horrible was happening. So I stopped and looked up and I was standing under this uh, big flag that said World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I was like, huh. And I was intrigued. So I went up there and I saw this massive class going on in this beautiful 2000 square foot dojo, you know, hardwood floor. And there in the middle was this like five foot five Japanese guy. He was built like a brick shit house and just the most interesting individual because he was like badass, you know, like you do not want to mess with this guy. But then moments later, he'd be like giggling like a schoolgirl, you know, and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And this looks really cool. So I signed up and within two weeks, I noticed that on Thursday nights, he had a small group of black belts that he would turn the lights off and they would sit on these little Zen, these little med meditation benches, which I now know is Zazen benches. And so out of this guy had hundreds of thousands of students worldwide and about a thousand at this school in New York, very famous teacher. And only about 10 black belts would do the meditation. And I asked him if I could join. He said, sure. So at 21, I took up Zen meditation under his watchful eye. And he taught me basic Zen. It was like boot camp meditation. And I did it um, religiously, so to speak, over that's not a great word to use. I did it every Thursday night. We would go to the Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York for these long retreats where we paired karate with Zen with the monks. And I was able to really upgrade my morning practice. And so I took up a morning practice that lasts about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. And I would practice Zen and then I would practice my visualization, visualizing whatever it was that I was trying to become or manifest in my life. At any rate, it was, it was a really cool experience. And I was doing it just on pure faith and because it made me feel good. And again, I think the reason for this is because of the contrast between not feeling good because of the chaos and, and trauma of my family. And I was extraordinarily fortunate to find that, hey, this is like, there's like this yin and yang contrast between not feeling good and feeling chaotic and, and unsettled and like something's off over here and sitting on that bench and letting my mind settle and feeling this total peace and calmness come over me. And so that was my first motivation, Dan, was just like, just to feel good. And because I trusted Nakamura, because he was a force to be reckoned with, I stuck with it. And I went from looking at meditation as something that would just make me feel better and had some physical health benefits 
to recognizing and experiencing his total transformative power. And I had some remarkable experiences sitting on that bench that literally caused me to question everything, every story that I had grown up with and that I had taken to be my own. And I literally rewired my entire brain until I suddenly, you know, over the course of about nine months, I suddenly saw that I was meant to be a warrior and not a Navy SEAL, mind you, but I had this, this sense that my calling was to be a warrior. And so I started asking better questions, questioning and, and challenging all the assumptions that I had made in my life for that core story, that origin story. And then I rejected the origin story without even having anything to replace it with. And that's when I was introduced to the Navy SEALs. Literally, once again, walking home from work, I they came across a Navy recruiting office and they had a poster on the window. And the title of the poster said, be someone special. And it had, you know, pictures of guys doing cool shit. It didn't say anything about the Navy SEALs, but I was transfixed. I just stood staring at that and I was like, shit, that's me. That I want to, that's, that's what it is. That's what I'm doing. That's how I'm supposed to be a warrior. There's a lot more to the story, but it was pretty extraordinary. I credit meditation for completely transforming my brain, my mind, um, my experience of life, what it means, you know, how I even characterize what it means to be human all came from those early years. And then it's just, you know, really just grown deeper and richer since then. And I've never stopped practicing. The nature of how I practice has really changed over the years as I've uh, exposed myself to many, many different types of practices and really started to experiment with myself and with the SEAL trainees that I started to teach because I wanted to bring them this, this knowledge. And um, it's been just an incredible journey. Yeah, and uh, you know, the, the thing I love about this is that you didn't have that, that formal induction into it from a, from the naive standpoint. And then some, somebody comes along and trains you, you know, our mutual friend, Kurt, and the three of us have had some great conversations about that pre-framing aspect of, sure. of certain things. When you, when you're being trained by someone, it's almost as if, if you haven't had any past experiences with it, it's almost as if this is what you expect. And this is what's the, the only way to do it because you're learning from, from someone. But when you can, when you can take it without that pre-framing, it opens things up because you get to experience flow without knowing what it was. You True. got to experience this mindfulness without actually being, um, being trained in it. But then you learn about it and you learn that there are ways to do it. And then at that point, you can kind of select your path. And it sounds like that's, that's right. what you did. Well, and it's, there's a lot you said there. I agree with that because I didn't have to take it on blind faith. And that's why a lot of people fail in meditation because, you know, they hear that it's beneficial. So they download an app like Focus at Will or you know, headspace or whatever. And then they, they, so they learn that meditation is just kind of randomly listening to a guided visualization. And as you know, there are benefits from a medical perspective, right? You're going to have some stress mm -hmm. release and just the act of sitting calmly is going to bring benefit, but it's not really meditating. That's just stress management. And then the other pitfall is if you do find a teacher and you pointed to one of the pitfalls, a lot of teachers will say, this is the only way, but it might not be the right way for that student. And the best teachers from the Eastern traditions would be very, very cautious. And it's kind of like the, the metaphor of the karate kid, you know, who was just told to paint the freaking fence or wax the, the window, you know, wax on, wax off. And I'm going to just observe you. 
And so the teacher would observe the student for a long period of time and then have the student work on foundational skills such as just getting healthy exercise, nutrition, you know, uh, ethical principles of good and right living until the, the teacher had a good sense for what was necessary for this person's particular shape of mind. And then they would give them a practice that would be, you know, the right practice for them. So meditation is such a broad subject that it's almost been corrupted to even use that term because it's, it's really a collection of hundreds, if not thousands of different practices that really should be customized or personalized based upon where the individual's mind is at. I, I was fortunate in that Zen was good for me because I, I was a disciplined individual, but Zen doesn't work for a lot of people. Zen is like boot camp, right? <laughs> and if, if you're not needing or wanting that kind of like austere discipline of the Japanese Zen way, then it will backfire, right? And also there's, there's several, there's, well, let me say this. There's a lot of preparatory practices. So breath training is a really good preparatory practice. Exercise and using uh, mental techniques to, to concentrate your mind, like I talked about with swimming or endurance sports, is preparatory practice. And you could say that it's meditation in a sense that you are, um, you know, you're releasing endorphins, you're getting your mind into a, a, a narrower rut where you're blocking out more random chatter. And so you experience some of the benefits. Um, but it's not true meditation in the sense because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of distractions still. And true meditation is ultimately turning inward and, and moving away from mental activity altogether. And there's three uh, ways to do that. One is through concentration where you just, you, you radically focus on one thing. It could be a mantra, which is an internal sound or even a spoken sound. It could be a spoken sound would be a chant, which is similar to an internal mantra. It could be a, a visual object, external or internal, uh, stuff like that. It could be box breathing, right? Which is what I teach the seals to really concentrate their mind. So concentration really gives you a lot of mental uh, power to hold your attention. So we call it attention control in the seals when I was training them. And then to be able to um, notice when your attention gets captured by something else and to be able to bring it quickly back to, you know, the mission or the task at hand. And then to be able to sustain, have the mental power to sustain your attention undistracted right until your mission is complete and as you can imagine seals are masters at concentration because we train it you know ad nauseum in our everything we do is basically some form of concentration training from the mind so that's one valid path but there's a point where you have to let go of the concentration in order to go further in the practice and that's where the zen master would come in and say okay now you take your foot off the gas pedal allow content to arise in your mind again but don't don't attach to it. Maintain that separate witnessing aspect. And so now that part is beginning to feel more like what's commonly called mindfulness. And what, the reason a lot of people fail at mindfulness is because they sit there and they think, well, I'm just supposed to watch my thoughts, but they're completely merged with their thoughts. And so they're really just thinking. Or they're thinking about their thinking, which you know, we would classically call contemplation, which again has some benefits, right? Contemplation, you know, compared with journaling is a beautiful practice, but it's not meditation. So mindfulness works when 
it's built on a concentrated mind. So it, like, it's good for people who have already done a lot of concentration work, whether formally or just naturally through the way they've been trained their mind. They've got the metacognitive ability to already separate from their thoughts. And then mindfulness is the, the capacity to just watch your thoughts with a dispassionate, non-attached manner and continue to turn inward and inward and inward until the witnessing starts to become experienced as not from mind, but from pure awareness. You know, and a, uh, very few people make that shift from witnessing from mind to witnessing from pure awareness. In fact, the, the classical form of mindfulness in the West is the Burmese form, and it's not even taught that way. It's taught improperly from my experience. And that's, then that's yeah. an area that I, I want to stop you there because I want to sure. explore this further because it's a topic that's been coming up lately um, around mindfulness. Um, sure. You know, our collective group, we had the, uh, the call with uh, Flora Nidrich yesterday and we got into a conversation about, I had uh, recently spoken with someone about the difference in the eastern mindfulness versus western mindfulness because mindfulness was really developed in in the eastern cultures and right the problem was that they think differently than the people in the western cultures um in in the sense that in the eastern cultures mindfulness is centered around the we us mm -hmm. whereas in western cultures where we're more i me it's more of a uh, different form of mindfulness that occurs. And I mean, you learned your mindfulness uh, through a Eastern teacher, which, you know, that's probably been uh, what kept you in the initial or the, with the essence of what the mindfulness was about, um, mm -hmm. because they did a study where people who focused on the I, me and mindfulness uh, were actually less generous afterwards than people who focused on the we us and yeah, i think yeah. there's that cultural difference gets lost sometimes when people are trying to do that in the context of western culture yeah but this is an interesting thing to discuss and, and and there's a valid point there but again we have to be careful about the context and the language we're using back to the idea that meditation is a very broad it's like saying leadership, right? There's, there's a million ways of leading and ways to define leadership. There's a million ways to meditate and a way to define meditation. And mindfulness as a subset of meditation also has many different faces to it. So just like I talked about in Zen, whereas um, literally just sitting and counting your breath to try to get to 10. And if you didn't get to 10 without thinking of anything but the count, you had to go back to zero. That's like boot camp 101. That was one of hundreds of practices. I never got beyond that in Zen because that's all Nakamura knew, right? But it was enough to get me on the path, right? What you're talking about and what this author was talking about is a preparatory practice in mindfulness for character development. And so back to what I'm saying, you're not ready to really do the higher forms of meditation if you're in a negative state. And most Westerners are in a very negative state, right? We're, we're we're wired to be negative. And so part of our preparatory practices are the, are the mindfulness practices of, uh, in fact, it's funny, you should bring it. I got a bunch of them that literally my wife just gave me, said, oh, check these out. It's mindfulness. I said, well, it is, but the preparatory practices, reverence for life, loving kindness, right? 
um, mindfulness practice on happiness, nourishment and healing, loving speech and de deep listening. This would be about others, right? Uh, how do we relate with others? So what, what these really are, are reflective practices where we take in either through a guided meditation where someone else is bringing us and, and having us, cueing us to reflect upon being kind and loving and to radiate that, you know, the classic loving kindness is think of someone that you actually love, really, really love, like your child or your spouse, and just bring them into your heart and, you know, shower them with love. And then you extend that out to people that you just kind of like, right? And then you spend, then you take it out to people that you're neutral toward and you shower them with love and you try to feel into that love. And then you even bring your enemies into this and you, and you feel love for them. And over time, this begins to cultivate more positive energy, you know, because ultimately we're just energy, as you know, as a medical person, like ultimately at a quantum level, we're just energy and the energy is vibrating. So negative energy is vibrating slower and has a different quality than positive energy. And so we're trying to basically tune our bodies vibrationally to the higher qualities, which are experienced emotionally, cognitively and spiritually as love and forgiveness and bliss and joy, you know, and I love Dr. David's Hawkins scale of consciousness. I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of listeners are mm -hmm. because, you know, he demarks um, courage as a demarcation line between negative energy below courage is anger and guilt and jealousy and rage and shame and those things and above courage or even pride being negative and above courage, then you get into acceptance and forgiveness and love and joy and bliss and all that kind of stuff, universal love. Mm -hmm. And so these preparatory practices, which has also been lumped into the realm of mindfulness are really like that, like what I talked about uh, as you, you're, you're cultivating the character to be able to sit in a non-attached, non-judgmental, positive state to where your mind can then turn inward without grasping or without distracting or without getting stuck in a uh, what the yogis would call a samskara or a negative rut. Because um, you just can't, the mind, the, the mind is just so conditioned by everything, society, your upbringing, your family. And so it's like you're born with this kind of like blank piece of clay. And by the time you're an adult, even a young adult, it's just completely shaped and formed. And most people think that's the way they are. But, but through these practices, you can start to reshape the, the mind. But ultimately, true meditation, like I said earlier, is to go beyond the mind itself. The experience of enlightenment and, and the idea of mu, which is the Zen concept of no mind, is to go beyond the mind. Now, in order to go beyond the mind, you have to use the mind. And this is the trick, right? But in order to use the mind effectively, you have to purify it. So the Zen, they, they use the concept of purifying the mirror of the mind. So you're reflecting, you know, the purest qualities of awareness through the mind. And the experience of no mind or Satori is when you finally recognize and experience pure awareness beyond thought. And then you, you turn toward that. And so that you're not done yet. So pure enlightenment, Satori is not enlightenment. And I think a lot of people um, mistake awakening or Satori for enlightenment, especially in the West. It's not. It's having a temporary experience, uh, an aha moment and say, oh, that's what that is. But your mind is still turned outward most of the time. But you can sit in meditation, turn inward and experience that again. And so the more you do that, the more you experience it again and again and again. 
And then you take it, what they say, off the mat or off the bench, and you begin to have that practice and experience in your everyday waking life until someday, and it can happen quite quickly, that becomes your permanent mental state or permanent state of mind beyond mind, right? And it gets hard. And this is also where they say words fail us, right? It's the experience that's important. There's no words. Words can only point to it. That's why they call them pointing out instructions. I don't know. I probably went down a little bit more rabbit hole and I don't know. No, no, I, was, I think the answer yeah. for these preparatory practices, culture does matter. Right. And going back to like we were talking about an effective, effective teacher would give a, a Westerner a very, very different set of preparatory practices than, than an Easterner. Well, it, you know, even the, the using the language of turning your attention inward, I think a lot of people get confused by that because they think, oh, I have to think about me and, and who I am. But it's more of thinking of that in relationship to everything else, the in nature and, and right. other people. It's the, the we, us, which is what the Eastern sure. culture is really focused on rather than the the self, the I. Well, it's turning relationship. With if it. you turn it inward toward the ego, you're looking for the wrong thing. Yeah. Because when you say turn inward, what we really mean is turn away from the ego, which is always attached outward, outwardly. And when you turn inward and you begin to tame that ego, you, and you begin to get those experiences that I was just uh, alluding to, then you recognize that everything is connected and that you and, you know, so you start to see the space instead of the separate whole, you know, separateness. So I look at you, I see that we share the same space and we arise out of the same space or the same consciousness. And then we share that yeah. it's, and we share it with everybody and everything. And so we are absolutely utterly the same, but as we're expressed in this dual um, material human life, we have our uniquenesses but if you celebrate the you know the sameness and applaud the uniquenesses then you get harmony and you get peace and you get inclusion and I think the one and, thing i and you get non-violence but if you separate you know if you focus on what separates us then you you get the opposite of those things unfortunately yeah i think uh i've i've personally noticed one of the biggest um hurdles for me has been the attachment thing you talked about. Uh, yeah. We have the ego wants to be so attached to yeah, everything and giving up attachments. That was, that was probably my biggest challenge, um, but the most freeing of it. And it was not easy. It was hard. Uh, it was painful, yeah. but the attachment piece was, was an essential piece that that was the last remaining piece for me really uh, well i think so. yeah. something else will come up in the i future. think this is where you know things like psychedelics or um peak state moments um euphoric moments you know like having a child or you know you start to begin to experience that unity mm-hmm. even if it's temporary and and you begin to say wow there's something more going on here right and it's going to draw you more and more toward the process of evolution you know natural evolution of the mind back toward its source and my experience is that also happens quite naturally you can accelerate it through discipline training but ultimately the irony is it's accessible to us right here and right now 
And this, again, I learned this through Zen and through, even through yoga is like, sometimes the harder you strive for it, the further you seem you get away because the ultimate path to that is through surrender. It's not striving. This is why I said concentration will ultimately be an obstacle because the experience is right here, right now. The experience of being alive and being aware of your aliveness or the experience of being just just purely aware of yourself being aware of yourself as a thinking human being, thinking, acting human being, that is the experience of enlightenment. And, and we want to make it super fancy. People who have that experience often um, don't stabilize there and they come back into their ego and then they can do great harm as teachers, right? Because they've got some fancy words and they have had some valid experiences, but they haven't stabilized there. And so their ego then takes over again. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a little bit tricky. And to me, the ultimate arbiter or um, like my, my um, Zen, Zen master, karate master, Nakamura is a great example, humility, right? Absolute utter humility and not ever putting oneself on a pedestal as being better than even the lowest of low people. You know, it's kind of like with Jesus people. Jesus' teachings, you know, the, the meek shall inherit the world, is what he said, but the meek didn't mean weak. It meant humble, right? And so true meditation leads to great humility. It doesn't stoke the ego. And so I think a lot of people, uh, you have to be aware of bypassing. You know, there's a really famous saying um, amongst early uh, meditation um, practitioners who were also psychotherapists who brought meditation into their psychotherapy practices in the 70s and 80s. And they, and they had a real problem with it because they were working with a lot of people who experienced childhood trauma or, you know, had ego development challenges, right? Attachment disorders and different things. And when people who have attachment disorders or ego development, um, stunted ego development, adult ego development, they start meditating, they have one of these experiences that we're talking about, then they suddenly can take on like a God complex. They'll do a massive emotional bypass when what they really need to be doing is 20 years of therapy before they start meditating. Right. And I had a meditation teacher once tell me, you know, if you're an asshole and you meditate for 20 more, 20 years, you're, you're likely just to be a more focused asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. So one of the uh, things you talk about is having daily practices of, of mind, body, and spirit. And we've talked about uh, mind and body, um, mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of people that, that don't quite fully understand spirit or the, the different um, ways to, to really focus on spirit yeah. or what is it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is true. I think religion has done a great um, disservice for people in trying to really, it, it's confusing, right? The word spirit and soul are tossed around and they're talked about mm -hmm. differently from different traditions. And, and so it can get very confusing. And so for most people's uh, spiritual practices, church, and that's fine, or prayer, and that's fine too. Right? Those are all valid. Uh, again, it, you have to be clear about what it is you're trying to do with your mind in terms of training your mind. Because face it, if you're not training your mind, then, then the world's training it for you and the results will speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in order to train the mind, you've got to train the body. Because the body is the seat of the mind. The body is uh, like the, the mind is like a river um, flowing in the bed of the body. It can't exist 
without the body. Mm-hmm. Consciousness needs the body, right? So from a duality sense, the, the medical profession that says the, that consciousness is a result of complexity and experiences in the brain, that's accurate, but it's not the whole story. So we train the body in order to um, clarify, purify, cleanse, train, focus, you know, insert word, the mind. And, and the brain becomes healthier as we do this. And you can back into this too by, by you know, nutrients for the brain, detoxifying the brain, um, you know, all the, the brain hacking stuff is all valid. That's kind of like backing into mental training by making sure that the brain is healthy. And then you can add your heart brain and your gut brain to that, your biome, you know, biome and your, uh, your heart and look at those as parts of your brain system and make those really healthy. So those will improve your mental capacity. And so that's the body training. Then the mind training, we use these tools that we're talking about concentration, visualization, you know, attention control, and we can begin to work with the mechanics of the mind and improve how you perceive, improve your imagery capacity, which then will help you improve your memory of past as well as your memory of future. So instead of a default mode where you just have fantasy in the future, you actually create a memory like I did of myself becoming a Navy SEAL, being a Navy SEAL. And then that became a memory of a, of a future event that hadn't happened yet. But because I had trained it in my mind, I was still, it was still a past event. Now all, all thinking, all active thinking is based upon memory, right? You can't actively think about something you've never seen or remember or, or, you know, had an experience psychedelic. I mean, right. Well, this, <laughs> I would, I would suggest like, that's kind of like the first pushback against the materialists who say that mind is only a construct of, you know, of your experience is in the brain is like, how is it possible to see things that your brain has never seen and remembered? Or have how an experience is, that you have no words for. How, yeah, how can you have an experience yeah. that comes through you that, you know, like ESP, that is not something that you've heard before or that you know before. And the yogis call that direct perception. That comes from pure awareness and from the field of all being, all things, universal consciousness. It doesn't come from a brain firing in memory, right? So, so that's, and so now we're getting into spiritual, the idea of, again, a word that has been corrupted. So we got to be very, very, mm-hmm. you know, discerning with how we use language. So now we say, okay, we're, we're training the mind and the mind has these certain functions. The yogis say the mind does these five basic things, right? Memory, we talked about. Imagery, right? We talked about that. Um, rational thinking, you know, using your neocortex, like planning, systemic thinking, and then ruminating. That's a, a distinct function. Dreaming is one of the more unique functions of the brain. And then direct perception. And direct perception is spontaneous. This is what I'm trying to teach now in, in my exponential mindset classes. How do we train leaders to be able to operate from the field of direct perception, which is that field of awareness where you, you through these practices, you turn in to be, be able to be able to, to think about your thinking from the field of pure awareness, that direct, directly perceiving uh, capacity where your, um, your knowledge or your response is accurate and spontaneous. The Japanese uh, warriors have a, a word for that called shibumi, effortless perfection. It's, it's not the same as flow. 
but you can experience this in a flow state if you've trained your mind to be in this pure awareness and direct perceiving state, right? Because when you are in a state of, um, of um, that directly perceiving, you have the same qualities as flow, right? You have control of time. Time actually starts to become kind of meaningless in the state because it's pure presence. And now when you have these experiences and you train for them and you have them more and more and you begin to stabilize that, we call that spiritual development in the East because they, they look at that pure consciousness, pure awareness, and you could insert and say, that's God. God isn't a man sitting on a chair you know, in heaven. God is all that is. God is all, right? And so that's why the words start to get tricky because we have these different hooks to words like God or spirit or soul. But the human, the very direct experience, and this is, I'm a, a, like an N equals one study practitioner, right? I love, I love studying and learning these things. And then I'll go read and validate, oh, what is, what my experience sounds a lot like what that guy was saying over there, that yogi who wrote this book 350 years ago, it sounds similar to that. So maybe, maybe it's close to that, but let me validate that against what this Tibetan guy says or what this, you know, Western psychotherapist is saying. And so then you start to recognize where you're on track or you're off track. It's, it's, it's a clumsy way to get there. And I wouldn't recommend it for everybody because it's taken me a long time to understand my experiences that I had as an 18 year old or 21 year old. You know, <laughs> I wish I had a guru who could, you know, who, who could have get, laid out the path for me. But I think the reason for me, Dan, that that didn't work out that way was because I, I needed to teach Westerners. You know, and I needed to teach yeah. them in a language that they understood. And, and I couldn't come at it as like, hey, I'm a Zajzen master or I'm a Zen master, you know, Rinpoche divine. Right. I have about 10 students, you know. <laughs> well, can you actually on that topic, can we uh, move into uh, the unbeatable mind? Um, of course. You know, what what is it that is that people can expect when they when they join unbeatable mind well unbeatable mind as you know came out of my training of uh, seals and special operatives mm -hmm. it's a program of, of total integration and i see i believe because this is what worked for me that one of the challenges that we've had in the west is we love to particularize you know we you know this is a medical professional we love to break things down into the smallest component part. And then we just focus on that little part and we forget the whole. And so when I train, especially through the martial arts, I trained the whole and the parts came along and integrated and worked a lot better than if I just focus on the little tiny parts. Sometimes you have to focus on the parts and break things down in order to learn proper form. And you can do this both in meditation as well as you know, physical movements, but ultimately you have to integrate and move as a whole and think as a whole. And so what I did was said, okay, I'm going to train these seals in a holistic integrated development program. And we're going to focus on their physical health, wellness, and capacity as humans. And obviously for those, that population, I had to get them up to like elite level status really quickly. And then I'm going to train them mentally and I'm going to use tools that work for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to use tools that I learned through yoga and martial arts and Tibetan Buddhism and Western psychology and theory and transpersonal, wherever I can find the tools, I'm going to test them and I'm going to evolve them and I'm going to strip the foo out of the Kung Fu and I'm going to use what works and I'm going to make it a living program. And we're going to, and that's where all of our breathing practices, our imagery practices, all of our meditation practices came from. 
They're very simple, they're drills, and they're customizable. And then what I found early on was, especially because I was working with guys, is that, you know, people say, hey, SEAL training is mostly mental. And I said, no, it's not. It's emotional. Right. You got the physical skills when you get there. Everyone's got the mental toughness. I've had a lot of people who are freaking mentally tougher than I probably was. And they quit. Why? Because it's their emotional resiliency. And they and guys don't like to train emotions. They think it's icky and they, you know, that's the touchy feely stuff when it's the probably most important thing for us to do as as a as a race is for men to become emotionally aware and mature. And so I started saying, you know what, we have to bring emotional training into this mix. And so that's the third component, what I call the third mountain. And then the fourth is intuition. Now, intuition can naturally unfold if you're in a high-risk environment. Like in the SEALs, we're extraordinarily intuitive. And when I say intuition, I mean that being able to listen and hear your gut saying, there's a roadside bomb up there, stop, you idiot, right? Because you're going to get yourself killed. Where does that information come from? Well, the, the bugs in your biome can sense that because they're, you know, they care about their survival. For some reason, they can sense that well before your brain can cognize it. And they send you signals and either through imagery or sensations or whatever. And, and if you learn to listen to it, then suddenly you saved your life and your teammate's life. And there's a, a tons and tons of examples that happened to me. Uh, one example for me, I was walking toward the shooting range. Um, this wasn't in combat, but in training. And I felt, I felt like a hand on my shoulder and I felt this I felt a voice. It's odd, you know, it's like an internal voice that stopped. And I stopped. And as soon as I stopped walking, uh, a, a teammate of mine had an accidental discharge behind me with his pistol, and the bullet went right by my ear. And had I taken the next step, it would have gone right in the back of my head. That was my gut's intuition, right? And intuition also can be experienced from the heart. You know, we call that empathy or empathic communication, right? To be able to feel how someone else is feeling and, and, and also thinking. So we trained intuition because I realized that it's a trainable skill and especially for these warriors is really important. But I also think for everybody, it's important because there's just so much, things are happening so fast. You know, with this exponential age we're in, you really have to rely on intuition and spontaneousness to be able to navigate because of the speed of change. And then the fifth mountain, so to speak, is the spiritual mountain, but I didn't want to use that term for the reasons that we just discussed. And so I call it Kokoro, which is another Japanese warrior term that inspired me, which is, means integration or whole mind, or merging heart, mind, and action, right? And so I put together a training program that trained all of these in a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and kind of annual way. And it was extraordinarily effective. And the SEALs that I train, 90% get through SEAL training. And a lot of them are now leaders in the SEALs. And the SEALs are teaching, you know, in Beetle Mind or, or tools of in Beetle Mind at SEAL training now. And so are the Air Force Pararescue. And so I had um, about around 2011, 2012, this all started in 2007 with SEAL Fit. I had a lot of uh, civilian leaders come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this training. I've heard about it, but um, I, I don't, I just can't do the hardcore physical piece. And so I spun out a program called Unbeatable Mind, and it has the same five mountain integrated development, but the physical training really is, is, you know, it's kind of on your own. If you want to get your ass kicked, you can come to my seal fit events, but you know, the recommendation and the co it's become the coached program. That's basically what I did. I turned it into a coached program instead of a, you come and I'll train you program. 
And so now we have 400 certified coaches and, and um, it's a year long program. And the transformation is extraordinary, right? And so we have a high-end client group that we ask people to stay a minimum three years. And of course, many do, but you know, it's not mandatory. But three years, we see massive transformation and at least one to two developmental stages of growth. If you, you know, referring to like developmental psychology, like shifting from, you know, a conventional to a post-conventional, you know, worldview would be a good example. Or, you know, shifting from self-realization um, or self-actualization or self-questioning to self-actualization using the Susan Crickbarter model. So we have a, an element of that um, developmental psychology where we, we can map the stage of development, what, come what we call growing up. And then there's an aspect of waking up through our uh, practices to pe- you know, have people wake up to that, um, that pure consciousness or that, that uh, discerning perceptual mind that can uh, operate at the speed of awareness like we talked about earlier. And then we have the clearing up and, and cleaning up of emotional. And so that's the emotional baggage and trauma. And that is something that our coaches can get into a little bit. But then um, if there's real trauma or like working with vets, you know, we often bring in experts like you or, you know, trauma experts like EMDR experts and whatnot. So we have collaborators who we then refer out to. That's a big part of the emotional development. So Somebody that's kind says, of how we work. It's a process of integration. It's, you know, we had this saying in the SEALs, Dan, and this, I'll shut up after this, but you can't mass <laughs> produce Navy uh, special operators. You can't mass produce excellence either, right? It's a, it's a process. And that's why I'm, I'm a, kind of an anti-hacker. I look at those as just tools and you discard the tools. Like I don't use any wearables. Um, I have tried them, but ultimately I find them to be crutches and a distraction. Um, I think hacks are fine, uh, but ultimately the training to the highest levels of, of awareness and beingness tend to become very, very simple. And you can become your biggest obstacle by, by doing too much and tracking too much and trying too hard. And it really is a process, you know, the difference between doing and being, we already have such a bias toward doing in the Western culture that we really need to just stop doing so much and just learn how to be, be present. More being, more being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love the, uh, the distinction of waking up and growing up. That's been something we've been uh, playing with a lot. Um, You know, because you see so many people who are grown up, but they haven't woken up. And then you have so many people who have woken up, but still haven't grown up. That's right. Uh, See this, see this. And they're different practices too. Yeah. Right. They are. So, I love Wilbur. Wilbur says, wake up, grow up. And then he realized that you have to clean up. Clean and up, I add right. open up. So wake up is a process of waking up to your story and going beyond your core story. And then, you know, learning that you are the creator of your story. Like you want to, you want to live heaven and earth. You have the ch- choice. Just do it. You can create that, but you got to retrain your mind away from all the negative patterns. Mm-hmm. That's waking up. And this then growing up is really the moving through the different stages of de- adult development to getting to the higher and higher stages, the highest being the unitive. And that's where waking up and growing up merge in that unitive stage of development. But you can't get there unless you do the clearing up. It's like John Kabat-Zinn, the guy who brought mindfulness to the United States. And he came out years, like 40 years after, you know, bringing mindfulness to the States through his um, mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And he said, you know what? 
his, the title of his book was After Enlightenment, Take Out the Trash. <laughs> and that referred to do the emotional work because all these spiritual leaders were, you know, sleeping with their students and, you know, dropping like, you know, 100 points on the consciousness scale because they were still stuck in their ego because of the shadow side. So you got to do the clearing up or cleaning up. And then I add a fourth, which is the intuition is also opening up, opening up to the natural wisdom and goodness that resides in all of us, right? You know, people say, how do you overcome? We call it, how do you um, get rid of the fear wolf, which resides in your head, all that negative thinking. And the point is you, in order to get rid of the fear wolf, you have to stop thinking about the negative thinking. And how do you do that? You feed the courage wolf, which is in your heart. And so you put your mind in your heart and you stoke the natural qualities. In the Buddha said you have like 82 positive qualities, but they're hidden by the seven deadly sins of your negative qualities. And those are those, the fear-based desires that your ego is constantly you know, attracted to. And yeah, so something you, you mentioned about the, uh, the, uh, not using the the wearables and the trackers and stuff. Um, I've seen that with with the special ops um, people that we we work with in the in the medical clinic, and then uh, in professional athletes, uh, um, especially like race car drivers. They have this this interoception that is is exceptional. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they know everything about the signals that they interpret from the body or that they right. get from the environment. And, um, you know, for me, I didn't have that. And a lot of people that, that haven't had that background or that training. Yeah. The wearables are helpful for that. Yeah. yeah because you get to learn right. the, what those signals actually translate to as far as stress, right. resting heart right. rates and sleep and, uh, all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the interoception is is off the charts for most of the uh, special ops guys. I mean, right. it, it, it's one of those things that just has amazed me about how consistently we see interoception in this group. Yeah, it's, and so is the proprioception because yeah. we learn to use our bodies as tools. Mm-hmm. And so that greatly extends the capacity of the mind. One of the uh, concepts I play with in my new Exponential Mindship program is the extended mind. And so interoception is one way that you extend the mind th- throughout the body and use that information wisely, but also proprioception by, you know, really training your body like a, like a gymnast or a CrossFitter or a Navy SEAL to be able to experience four-dimensional space, you know, mm-hmm. and use movement to inform, you know, higher order thinking. It's really cool. And then we right. extend, we extend our mind through wearables. So wearables is a way to extend your mind. But, you know, like I said, once you learn the skill, then you should discard the then tool. Then you move beyond it, right? Move beyond the tool. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, all of this, uh, this talk of this mind, body, and spirit, but the ultimate goal is to have the, the exceptional experience of life. That's right. Yeah, it's not to move beyond it. it to its extreme. Exactly. To be fully immersed in life, fully aware, fully alive, but to do so where you're not obsessed with the latest drama and all the thoughts and emotions. And I love the, you know, metaphors are the only way that to really talk about the experience. But, you know, the more you train your body, mind and spirit in an integrated fashion, the more that you begin to experience life like the depth of the ocean itself and thoughts and emotions and the dramas of life that occur are like the little surface chop. 
they're still part of your existence. You don't run from them. You actually embrace them. You fully live them, but they're not, they don't define who you are. You're defined by the depths and that's peace. Peaceful. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure as always any conversations uh, that I have with you. Um, What's the best way for, for people to kind of learn more about this? Well, my, my website, markdevine.com is a good place to learn about me or to, you know, look at some of the books that I've worked on, my latest stuff. The training, you know, most of my training, if not all of it, is done through my company, Unbeatable. And that website is unbeatablemind.com. Mm-hmm. And people can find uh, me on Twitter at Mark Devine and, you know, the, the usual stuff. <laughs> well, thank you for your time today, Mark. Uh, it's been a, been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dan. It's been an honor. Take care now. Take yeah. care. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.